be a part of that time. If you have a Bible, open to John chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there are some right back there by Pastor Mike, and he would be glad to get one to you if you would like one. Uh, We're going to wrap up this series today called Back to Basics. So over the last three weeks, the fourth week is today, we've been uh, looking at some of the basic beliefs, what it means to follow Jesus. And uh, as we come back to basics, our goal has not primarily been to revisit the basics so that we remember. That's good. Nothing wrong with that. But our primary goal has been to, uh, to look at the truth so that we're able to recognize the counterfeit. Uh, one of the things you've probably heard me say before, and you'll hear me say again, we live in a Christianized country. And what I mean by that is not a Christian country, but a Christianized country. Our culture and our language often utilize Bible terms and uh, utilize words of faith without necessarily meaning the same thing that it means to us as followers of Jesus. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, then I, I want us to be able to recognize what the church truly is, what a disciple truly is, what the gospel truly is. So when we hear people say, this is the gospel, or this is the church, or this is following Jesus, we're able to say, no, that's, that's actually not. That's not what the Bible says. Uh, that becomes a very important discipline, particularly as we move in our culture today. And so uh, three weeks ago, we answered the question, what is the church? And uh, without being exhaustive, we effectively said, the church is an involved group of people who are marked by joy. So it's not just a sit and soak kind of thing. It's not I belong to an organization. It's a group of people who are gifted by God and they utilize those gifts within the body of Christ for the encouragement of the body of Christ. And there's a, the, the marker of that people is joy. God fills us up with joy and part of the way he does that is through one another. So that is the church. The, the idea of discipleship then or the word that we typically use is apprenticeship is that we are people who aren't just assenting to a group of, of uh, beliefs that we say this is the truth. We're not just people who are part of an organization, but we are people who are spending time with Jesus for the goal of becoming like Jesus so that we would do the things that Jesus did in the world around us. So there's an active movement towards Christ-likeness. Not perfectly, but a, a constant and regular move towards Christ-likeness that is, that is bound up in what it means to be an apprentice. And then last week, uh, Nate Howard was here and talked to us about the gospel. And I won't go through all of that again, but you remember the latter. And the idea is that the gospel always begins with God and ends with our action, not starting with our action flowing up to God. So because of who God is, God acts. Because of the way God acts, that identifies who I am. And because of who I am, that's the way that I live. And as we go down the ladder, that's the gospel. As we move up the ladder, it's anti-gospel. I try to act a certain way in order to be become a certain person in order to, to get God to do something on my behalf, and then I judge him based on that. So that's anti-gospel versus gospel. All three of those are worth going back and digging into if you missed them, so uh, you can do that on YouTube or podcast or whatever. Um, so tonight, what I'm hoping to do is ask a fourth question, what is the mission or the mission of God? And in asking that question, hopefully wrap up all three of the other ones as well. And uh, my concern is that you've heard a lot of really good stuff over the last three weeks. Like there's things that you're like, oh, that's good. Like I caught that. Oh, that's different. That's a new way of thinking. And, and, And 
I'm concerned about that, not because that's bad. In fact, I know that's true because lots of you have talked to me about things that you've learned and things that you've heard, uh, different ways that you're looking at things. I'm concerned about that because if all we have is a group of mental ideas that we've gained through this time, six months from now, you're going to find yourself doing something like this. Man, I remember that series about basics, something, there was a ladder. Um, Man, what did he say? Why doesn't he ever preach Song of Solomon? I'm really interested in what he says about Song of Solomon. And then you're just off and you forget. And you just can't remember what it was that you were, what it was we were talking about. How do you take mental ascent and make it part of your life? That happens through action bound up in love. Here's what I mean. We don't simply know something, but we start to do that thing that we know, and as we live it out, it becomes part of us, but we don't just do it, we do it in love because we have received from God, and because we've been loved by God, we're able to love others. That's part of the way that 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 sinks deeply into our heart. And so mission is tied into that idea of us going and doing because of the love of God for us and giving the love of God through us. If somebody was coming up to you and they were asking the question, what's the Christian life all about? Like somebody maybe who's not a believer, somebody who maybe is a churchgoer, not a churchgoer. What's the Christian life all about? Like, why do you do this? What would you tell them? Like, I think for a lot of us, we would describe that, well, there's this, there's this weekend service and um, we come and we worship, and we're led in worship, and that's beautiful, and that was, that's really good, and um, that, there's a guy who yells at us some, and sometimes it's good, and sometimes it's funny, and sometimes it's boring, and whatever, and then, uh, then we go on with our week, and we get up in the morning, and we try to spend time with the Lord, and um, we try to do that so that we would see the world through a better lens and uh, be able to love people well, and we meet with our community group in the middle of the week to try to uh, apply what we've learned, and I I talk to my discipleship partner every couple weeks, and uh, we try to be honest with one another. And I mean, I guess that's it. I, I think that maybe is part of, if we were honest, part of us would say that. Part of us would maybe say, well, I'm, I'm in this because, like, Jesus is going to take me to heaven with him. So I'm like, I need to have my sins forgiven. I need to go to heaven. So I don't want to go to hell. So here I am. Or maybe you'd talk about your identity and and how God's changed your identity. All those things are good. But can I just submit that if that's our definition for the Christian life, it's not a big surprise that most Christians are bored. And when I say bored, what I don't, I don't mean that your schedule's not full. I know your schedule's full. But your schedule's full. My schedule is often full of boring things. Like, I'm not excited. I don't get up in the morning and think, man, I can't wait to look at my schedule and see what Jesus put on there today, right? I'm just like, well, it's full. I just know it's full. Like, it's just stuff. Of all people on earth, Christians should be the last people who are bored because Jesus has invited us into something that's so much bigger than us. And so every day we should be waking up with an excitement that comes from the mission that has been laid out before us. But most of us aren't there. Why? Well, I believe in part it's because we have believed a gospel that's split in half. A a gospel that doesn't recognize that Jesus is Lord of all things. So I I want you to do an exercise with me. Just repeat after me. Say this. 
I am not my own. Uh, pretty good. Try that again. I am not my own. Now, I want you to imagine if you got up every morning and, and you looked in the mirror and you said, I am not my own, and you started your day, that would be so much better than looking in the mirror and saying, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. You remember that? Anybody remember that? Man, that's so sad. There's like this big, that was like Saturday Night Live back when it used to be good in the early 90s, and you all missed it. This huge generation gap just jumped right in, and you all missed it. Beth got it. Thank you, Beth. You remember looking in the mirror and saying, anyway, I, if, you, if you start with, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, doggone it, people like me, that's not going to help you much. But if you look in the mirror and you say what is biblically true, I am not my own. I don't belong to me. Then all of a sudden, we start a new kind of day. Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ now lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, when we understand this, this concept that we are not our own, we, we begin to enter into the, the full reality of lordship. See, we, we've believed, most of us have heard a gospel that's, that's half. We've heard this idea that somehow we can trust Jesus as our savior, and at some point in time later in life, we can decide that he's going to be our lord. The problem with that is the Bible itself, which doesn't talk about that at all. Like there's no understanding of Jesus being our Savior and then at some other time him being our Lord. Like if he's great enough to save you from sin and death and hell, then he's worth following with everything you have. And if you're not interested in following him with everything you have, he's probably not saving you from sin and death and hell. Like those things go together. So when we get up in the morning and we say, I'm not my own, we're reminding ourselves that he has laid out something in front of me. So Paul, when he was writing to the Corinthian church, he wrote this. It's going to be on the screen. You don't need to turn there. It's going to be right on the screen. Therefore, if, say that word. Oh, I can't read. Okay, let's try this again. Okay. Therefore, if, what's it say? Anyone, anyone is in Christ. He's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled him, uh, us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, look right at me. This is really, really important. If you don't get the rest of this, it's okay. You need to get this. The, the ambassadors for Christ, those people who have been reconciled and now are reconciling, that's not only the pastor. And that's not the organization of the church. Go to that third word. What's it say? If, therefore, if anyone, anyone, that's not a special category of Christian. There's not like the super trained people, the really gifted people, the people who have uh, gone through the ordination exam, the people who are um, the, the, just the extroverts. Like it's not just, it's, it's everybody. All of us are ambassadors for Christ. I actually thought about just stopping right there and just having you parade across the stage and one after another pronouncing you as an ambassador to Christ. And then we're just going to go home. But the, 
The problem was I still had a lot to say and, you know, I did stuff. So anyway, uh, but it's true. You're all, we are all equally ambassadors for Christ. Not some organization, not some special level of Christian. All of us. So if that's the case, how do we step into that? What's it look like to do it? So we're going to start in the book of John. We're going to dig around in the book of John a little bit. We're going to come back to the Gospel of Matthew because uh, we've been there a bunch in the last couple of years, and I think that'll be helpful for us. And as we do, we're, we're going to ask the question, what is the mission of God? And we're going to look at three primary categories. That mission is first, belonging to God, second, driven by love, and third, often uncomfortable. I know that that just made you uncomfortable, that I said we're going to talk about being uncomfortable, but don't worry, it's going to be uncomfortable. Awesome. All right. So with all of that said, take a deep breath and let's pray together and let's invite Jesus to speak to us. Jesus, we recognize your presence and your power with us. And we ask that you would direct us through your word tonight. We pray that you would narrate the journey, speak to our hearts, point to us as we need to hear from you. God, I pray that my words that come from my flesh would fall to the ground and be forgotten, but that your words that come from your spirit would penetrate our hearts and change us. Jesus, we want to be more like you, and we want to be doing the things that you're inviting us to do, and so open our eyes to that reality. God, change us, certainly at the action level, but by your Spirit, change our desires as well, that we would be people who long for the things that you long for. And so, God, we trust you. We pray that you would work and that we would be responsive to your work in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So mission belongs to God. The first problem that we have in mission is that we tend to receive it as a personal mission that's given to us. Your mission should you choose to accept it. Another generational gap? Yeah, there's a few. Okay, good, good. That was Mission Impossible. Come on, guys. Anyway, I don't even watch movies and I know this stuff. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is this idea that, well, I'm going to step into the mission of God. Like, he's, he's called me. I'm in. I'm the one. But see, here's the thing. This has always been God's mission, not our mission. So all the way back, like go all the way back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sin, and sin enters into the world. The very first thing that God says after sin enters into the world is that the seed of the woman will be coming to crush the head of the serpent. So let me translate that. God said to Adam and Eve, don't worry, I'm coming for you. I got this. I got this. And he began, in Genesis 3, this rescue plan that flows through the entire Old Testament. We could walk story after story after story, and I could show you, but we do not have enough time for that. So we're going to fast forward to the New Testament, because there's a bunch in there as well. But trust me, there's a bunch in the Old Testament, one thing after another, God coming, God coming, God coming. But finally, John chapter 1, where I asked you to turn, Jesus comes from God as God. Listen to what he says. This is verse 14. 
And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So this rescue plan that God began in Genesis chapter 3 begins to take flesh form in John chapter 1 as Jesus comes in, sent from God, coming to earth, literally moving into the neighborhood. He comes to be a part of us. Now flip a couple pages to John chapter 3. Verse 16, one of the most famous verses in Western Christianity. For God so loved the world that he gave, or that word could also be translated sent, his only son, that whomever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So God sends Jesus as the rescue plan to earth in order to save us. So God's mission, starting in Genesis, carried through Jesus is his work to redeem all people. God so loved all the world that he sent Jesus that we would be redeemed. Now, go a couple more pages to John chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus says this, My father is working until now, and I also am working. And then skip down to verse 19. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Now turn a couple more pages to John 8. We're going to comment on that in just a second. So John 8, 28 and 29. Jesus again says, So, so Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. All right, so quick primer on, uh, on Trinitarian theology. God the Father sends Jesus the Son who is also fully God. So God the Father has a heart for mission. He desires to come and rescue his people. He sends God the Son, who has a heart for mission, who comes to rescue his people. And God the Son says, I always do what the Father's doing. I and the Father are one. We're working in tandem with one another. Our, our motivations are the same. Our movements are the same. They're both deeply embedded in mission. Mission belongs first to God. Now, uh, why do we think it belongs to us? Flip to John chapter 20. I like to call this the Forgotten Commission. We're going to get to the Great Commission in just a little bit. But this is uh, another commission uh, that Jesus spoke over his disciples. We're going to start in verse uh, 21. Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. So Jesus commissions his disciples into the mission that the Father is doing and that the Son is doing. He empowers them with the Holy Spirit. So when Jesus in Matthew 28, the commission that you're probably more familiar with, says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, so go make disciples, he's saying, I'm going with you. Remember the end of that, truly I'm with you always to the end of the age. This is God's mission. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, there, there will be a power that will come upon you and you will have power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. The empowerment of God goes before us because this is not our mission, this is his mission. The mission first belongs to God. 
David Bosch, a missiologist, he wraps it up this way. Mission is understood as being derived from the very nature of God. It is thus put in, context of, put in the context of the doctrine of the Trinity. The classical doctrine of the Missio Dei, that's mission of God, as God the Father sending the Son, and God the Father and the Son sending the Spirit, is expanded to include yet another movement, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit sending the church into the world. So there's sending, 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 sending because this mission starts with God, is completed in God, and we as the church are sent out. So here, at this point, you should all take a really deep breath. Just breathe because what I just said is this mission does not rest on your shoulders. You do not have to go out and save the world. Your calling is not to go fix everything. Your calling is not to go be the best evangelist ever, to be the next Billy Graham or whatever. You... Your calling is simply to join God in the work that he's already doing. The mission is his, and we're invited into it. So the mission comes from God. We're sent out by God into his mission to join him. Like a dad who's saying, come play. Come on, we're going to go do this together. It's going to be fun. It's going to be so exciting. Come on. So we're sent. How are we sent? We'll go back to John chapter 3 one more time. Listen to the words that Jesus speaks. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Mission is not only from God, but mission is driven by love. Mission is not primarily a call to make the world a better place. I think the world will become a better place as we all pursue after Jesus. But that's not the primary call. The primary call of mission is not to make those dirty, nasty sinners do better things. It's not to, like, fix the morality of the world. It's not even a call to justice, as important as justice is. Mission is not driven by morality. It's not driven by justice. It's not driven by society. Mission is driven by love. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And now look at verse 17. We tend to stop at 16. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is a challenge Because the people of God, those who have been sent by God in that next movement of the Missio Dei, um, we, we are spoken of in the world around us, seen as being incredibly condemning of people. Why is it that the people sent from God, when God is send, sending in love, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world? Why are those of us who are his representatives seen as being condemning? How did Jesus react when he saw people enmeshed in sin? And think about that throughout the Gospels. As Jesus interacts with people in sin, how does he respond to them? Always in love. Always. I mean, he was salty sometimes, but he was salty with people like us, like church, uh, religious people. Like, so you, you, I, if you don't categorize yourself as that, that's okay. But like the, the church people, he was salty with us. But the, the broken, sinful people, always love, always mercy. He always came to them not to condemn them. You remember John chapter 8, the woman caught in adultery? What's he say to her? Neither do I condemn you. 
go and sin no more. He, he's speaking peace into her life. She, she's clearly caught in sin. But he's coming at her with love and not with condemnation. Mission is driven by love. Now you might say, yeah, but that's Jesus, and he's way better at loving than I am. I'm actually a spiritual gift of condemnation. I'm really good at that, right? So I'm good at, like, hammering people. I'm on that, right? Like, how, how, what do we do with that? Like, how does that work? Well, remember the ladder from last week? If, if at the bottom we're saying, okay, I'm supposed to love people. I better work at loving people. Now, we're, we probably are not going to find that love in us. But say we start at the top. What's God like? God so loved the world. He's loving what did he do? He sent his son into the world to express that love. What's that mean about me? Well, that means that I'm loved. And as, as, as soon as I get that as deeply and fully as God intends it, now all of a sudden that what flows out of me is love for others, not condemnation, but love. Because I've been received. I haven't been condemned. I've been loved. And so now I'm free to love the world around me. When we, when we feel as though we can't love, it's because we don't we're not living the gospel. John Dawson, I think that's his name. Yep, there we go. Got it right. Beautiful. John Dawson says this when he talks about love for our neighbors. He says, don't wait for a feeling of love in order to share Christ. You already love your heavenly father and you know that this person is created by him but separated from him. So take those first steps in evangelism because you love God. Such a beautiful expression because what Dawson's saying is you, you don't have to sit and try to generate love for that person that seems so different than you, that seems even so offensive to you, that seems so frustrating and bothersome to you. That, that's, if you just sit and wait for that to happen, you're probably going to be waiting a long time. But if you recognize that person's really annoying to me, but God created them and loved them and he's separated, they're, they're separated from him. And so I love God. I'll step into the process. I'll, I'll, I'll be a part of the journey. Mission is driven by love, and mission comes from God. But here's the problem. Mission that comes from God and is driven by love is off, often uncomfortable. Now, you could say it this way, that if we are going to be on the mission of God— with the motivation of God, then we should use the methods of God. That'd be a great way to lay it out. It would be a great three-point sermon, but I really wanted to put uncomfortable in big letters on the screen for you because I want it to be uncomfortable. So I went with a different layout. But if you like it that way, go for it. Mission, uh, motivation, methodology. That's totally fine too. Any of those will work. Um, so how do we jump into this? What, what do we do if we're going to be a part of God's plan that's his mission that's motivated by love? What are we supposed to do? Well, um, I, I want to use a, 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 a structure that a pastor named John Tyson laid out. I thought it was super helpful to try to understand the way, uh, the way Jesus did mission. And so, so let's start here. Um, how many of us like comfort? Are you, you big on comfort? I'm real, I love, love comfort. I um, really enjoy being comfortable. Um, I, like, I like it when everything is exactly like I like it to be. That's really important to me. And there's ice cream. Those are the two things together that make it like that's really good for me. Um, and I, I really love it when there are people around who I'm comfortable with. You, you know what I'm talking about? Like um, when you have people and, and they're just, they're people that you can just totally be you with. 
You're just comfortable with those people. Not everybody's like that, but when you have people around you who you're comfortable like, that, that feels good. Now what happens when one of those people within that little circle that you're comfortable with get this passion for what Jesus is doing in the world around them? Like all of a sudden you hear them saying stuff like, what do you think Jesus thinks about that? Man, I really think Jesus' heart is for that person or for these people. What do you think? What's your reaction to that? Like my first reaction, it tends to be caution. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. take a deep breath, slow down, breathe. Um, yeah, yeah I, I hear you, but man, you got to be careful. What balance, right? Don't go crazy. Like, don't jump off the deep end. Remember, you need to practice Sabbath. I'm really big on Sabbath. That's good. Um, You need to prioritize your family. You need to make sure you're doing, like everything's got to be in order, right? Caution. Take take a deep breath. But then as they start to move into that thing, caution gives way to concern. So you might say it this way. Like, I I get that you want to take Jesus personally. We're supposed to take Jesus personally. That's good. I, I get that you want to take Jesus intellectually and understand who he is. I get it. But I'm starting to be concerned that you're trying to take Jesus seriously. Like, back up a little bit, yo. Like, you're going a little crazy here. And, and so this concern starts to be expressed. And as that concern gets expressed, because of the fact that you now, as part of that comfortable community of mine, are starting to live in a way that's challenging me and the guilt and conscience inside of me is kind of welling up, concern very starts, quickly starts to give way to criticism, usually to somebody else. Do you see what he's doing? Like, what, what in the world is that all about? Like, why has he got to go do all that crazy stuff? Like, he's off the deep end, right? So, so comfort gives way to caution, gives way to concern, gives way to criticism. And as that criticism starts to unfold, because that person is pushing the edge of that community, there's this line that gets crossed over into what Tyson calls cultural darkness. So cultural darkness on that outside is separated, and there's a line, if you picture that line coming straight through, that's going to be the next one there. Uh, That line is what Tyson calls the redemptive edge. So the redemptive edge is this section where you move from being criticized by the community of faith into the world outside of the community of faith that desperately needs to experience the gospel. Let me try to have, Tyson can explain it better. Look at the way that he says it. There's a place where the religious world doesn't understand and the darkness of the rest of the world exists called the redemptive edge. This is the place where the kingdom of God directly engages the kingdom of darkness. So what he's saying is there's this point where the the kingdom of God is pushing into this area that is clearly not the kingdom of God. And that there's there's this edge that we're working along. Now here's the question I want to ask you, if you want to go back to that arrow, Noah. Here's the question I want to ask you. As you look at all five of those, where did Jesus spend the majority of his time? When Jesus was doing ministry... He spent time in all of those areas, right? So there's times where he was in the comfortable community of of the the disciples. He was was connected with them. There's a lot of times where he started to push past that where there was some caution, right? Like, whoa, Jesus, calm down. Remember uh, the the woman at the well? Like, Jesus, what are you doing talking to her? Like, "Mm, maybe pull back from that a little bit. That could cross over into concern at times, uh, where, where there's a, a sense of like, um, hey, you've kind of gone off the deep end. Like, you remember when, uh, when Jesus' mom and brothers showed up, and they were like, 
he's crazy. Like he, he lost his mind. Bring him over here. Bring him over here, right? And Jesus said, it's great. Jesus says, my mother and brothers are those who do the will of the Father along with me. And they were like, like, right, that crossed way over to concern right away. Like, whoa, con- concern. And then it became criticism. Like, what kind of a son is that? What's he doing? What's, it, what's happening here? Jesus is constantly pushing the edge into this redemptive edge where the kingdom of God butts up against the kingdom of darkness, where there are people who are in desperate need of the Father that most of us, listen to me, are too comfortable to care about. We're so far over in comfort, we don't even get exposed to people that are over there. But here's the thing. Jesus was always over there. Leslie Newbegin, who was a missionary who became a missiologist as he began to study culture, he he says this, the deepest, get this, the deepest motive for mission is simply the desire to be with Jesus where he is on the frontier between the reign of God and the usurped dominion of the devil. I love that. Because this is what Newbing is saying. He says, what really drives mission is that I want to be with Jesus. And if I'm going to be with Jesus, I better be all the way over here because Jesus ain't hanging out over here with all the holy people. Like Jesus is out there, right? He's, he's with these people that are... Um, uh, difficult to love, right? He, he's out with the people that we would say, ooh, that makes me real nervous to hang with them. Like, I'm not, I'm just, I'm not so sure about it. But that's where Jesus is. And so Newbigin's saying, if you want to be with Jesus, you're going to have to hang out over here on the edge because Jesus isn't hanging out over here in the middle. If you don't believe me, let me just run through. I don't have time to go through all the examples uh, deeply, but let me just skim over the top of them. John chapter four. There's a woman from Samaria at the well in the middle of the day. Those, th- those three things together say that that's the last person Jesus should be talking to. As a Jewish man, he should never talk to a Samaritan woman. And any woman that goes to the well in the middle of the day when it's really hot is doing it because there's some issues, right? And so he's talking to this woman and the disciples are like, whoa, 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 whoa. This is kingdom of darkness stuff. We're over here. Like, what are you doing over there, right? Uh, Mark chapter 5, Jesus gets in a boat with his disciples and crosses a lake into the, the territory that was, uh, the, was clearly the Gentile territory. And not only did he go to the te- Gentile territory, but he goes to this place where there's this guy possessed by demons and his parents chained him up in the cemetery so they didn't have to deal with him. Like here's a guy who nobody wants to deal with. Like talk about cultural darkness. He's way over the line. And Jesus seems to cross the entire lake only to go talk to this guy. Like, it's not like going to the town and meet the, like, the, the guy who runs the town. Or like, no, he's going to the demoniac. Like, are you kidding me? And then once he's over there, he does this tour of an area called the Decapolis. Um, it was a, a, a place that was known as a heathen place. In fact, um, it, it was called the, the far-off country. It's actually uh, the, the same term that Jesus uses when he tells the story of the prodigal son was the kind of the shorthand term for the Decapolis. And Jesus goes there. It's all this stuff. He, he feeds 4,000. He feeds 5,000. He heals people. He does all of this stuff out in the middle of pagan country. He calls sketchy disciples, right? 
Like he, he calls the tax collectors, he calls the zealots sketchy people. And not only does he call sketchy disciples, but like Zacchaeus is the chief of the tax collectors. And he's like, hey, come, come on, I'm going to go live in your house today. I'm going to go eat dinner with you. Like Jesus invites himself over to dinner, which I also love. That's great. But he's like, I'm going to go to your house today. We're going to eat dinner. The chief of the tax collectors. The, the one that's most mind-blowing to me is Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, there's this woman who comes to Jesus And she takes this perfume as she's weeping over him, and she spreads it on his feet, and as she weeps, and she takes down her hair, and she wipes his feet. Now, this is a woman, let's use all of the appropriate cultural terms. Uh, This is a, a, a woman of ill repute. She has a past. She is living a lifestyle that is out of sync with the Bible, at least, okay? So she, she's got serious issues. And she comes to Jesus with this tenderness because of his love for her. This would be like if you showed up at church on Sunday night, Saturday night, and you said, where's Brian? I thought Brian was going to be here. And like, oh, there's a strip club out at the side of town. He's out back of that strip club. Excuse me? Yeah, there's a girl named Holly he's talking to excuse me? And the elders like get in the car and quickly drive away, right? Like, whoa, what's going on? This is what Jesus is doing. He's pushing the edge into the unmentionable people of society, the difficult people of society, people who are pushed out of the comfortable area in order that the kingdom of light would move toward the kingdom of darkness. Now, here's what you need to hear. That redemptive edge It's not on the other side of the world. It's not even on the other side of town. In fact, for most of us, if we're totally honest, you don't even have to cross the street. Like there are people all around us who are uh, meeting that definition of the redemptive edge. We have neighbors, we have coworkers, we have people that we're regularly coming in contact with that we would say, when I interact with them and we start a conversation, they start talking about their life, it makes me really uncomfortable as a follower of Jesus. Right? And Jesus says, yes, that's where I want you. That's where I want you, where you're uncomfortable. Because those are the people who need to encounter him. Those are the people that the mission of God is after and that the love of God is flowing through towards, but we have to be willing to move outside of our comfort zone to get there. And if we live over on the redemptive edge, we begin to engage those people. Now look, I'm not saying that we don't come back to the comfort of community. I'm not saying that we don't get built back up again. Of course we do. We need to do that. Jesus did that. We need to do that. But we need to be people who don't stay there. So I think one of the core issues is how we read Matthew chapter 28. So um, I want to wrap up here. The book of Matthew, we've been studying for um, two and a half years or something like that. Um, God willing, I, I know that we shouldn't plan because we're in a global pandemic and anything could happen. But the plan is we are going to finish the Gospel of Matthew on Easter Sunday, and so we'll be celebrating the resurrection and the marathon of getting through the Gospel of Matthew. That'll be beautiful. Um, but when you read the Gospel of Matthew, if you remember all the way back, I know it was like eons ago, when we started the Gospel of Matthew, it starts with this genealogy. You remember that? Like, this person begat this person, begat this person, begat this person. And it sounds very formal, and it sounds very odd to our ears. And then as Jesus starts to teach, 
Like there's this section, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, where Jesus is saying these things that seem so incredibly idealistic and almost naive. Like, do you, like at the end of Matthew chapter 5, be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. And you're saying, yeah, 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 right. I don't know why I picture Jesus talking in a British accent, but I do. It's just the way, way it works. Um, it, like, be perfect. Yeah, sure, go ahead. Do that. And so we go through, we're reading through the Gospel of Matthew, and everything seems like this, this lovely little story that we are holding out as though it's like a Shakespearean dialogue and we're reading it through in this kind of formal way. And so we get to the end, we get to Matthew 28 and Jesus is coming to this group of disciples and, and we hear it, I do, I hear it in my head because I've heard it so many times in this kind of formal kind of Shakespearean lilt. Like Jesus comes and he, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Huh. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey all I've commanded you. And lo, I always go to the King James when we get there. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And I, and I shut the Bible and I say, oh, good story, old chap, you know, or something, right? It's just like, that's, that's it. That's just like, oh, that's so nice. I like it. That's a good story, right? And then I put it down and I move on. Because it seems like it feels like that kind of story. But see, when you read it, what, what we should be reading, if we could get the heart of the Greek, a right translation would be, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, so get going! That's what Jesus is literally saying. So go! Like, get moving. Like, there's stuff to do. Like, when we hear it, we think this kind of formal retelling, but it's, it's kind of like, have you ever done a, um, a high ropes course? You know, in the high ropes, they use these for team building because they want to terrorize people like me. I don't know why they do this, but you, you get up, you're, you're standing on a platform, and you have to step out. You're probably, I don't know, probably like really 15 feet in the air. It feels like 300 feet in the air, and if I slip, I will immediately die. Uh, well, not immediately, because it takes me like an hour and a half to fall to the ground, and then I'll die, or whatever. It's, it's terrifying, and you have this like little thing in front of you, and supposedly you're like strapped in, and supposedly you won't die, but I don't buy it, like whatever. And, and when you're there, and you're getting ready to step out, there are people all around you, because that's the whole point of the team building thing, right? So there's people down on the ground, and there's people behind you. And what are they saying? Like, don't do it. You're going to die. No, that's, that's what you should say, but that's not what they're saying, right? What are they saying? Like, you can do it. Like, step out. You got this. People are from the bottom. Like, what do they know? They're standing on the ground. Like, whatever. Uh, but they're like, you got it. Go. It looks good. Step forward. You know, and you hear this kind of, go. Like, do it. The end of the Gospel of Matthew is not intended to be a Shakespearean dialogue. It's intended to be a crowd of people around us saying, go, do it, step into it. So, so when you and I are all of a sudden find ourselves in a conversation with somebody who makes us very uncomfortable, that's the spirit of Jesus saying, go, do it, do it, step out. When you see that person down the street and you think, oh my goodness, I should go the other direction. It's the Spirit of Jesus saying, go, step into it. That person that you think, I don't know, if somebody sees me talking to them, that's not going to go well. Jesus saying, go, step into it. Go, step out. You got this. The heart of the mission of God 
is that we would be his people as we step out in boldness, in faith, in some of the difficult conversations, yeah, and in some of the easier conversations. Acts chapter 17 says that God has put you and I exactly where we are when we are on purpose. That's my paraphrase, but it's really close. Like he says, he has determined the allotted boundaries and places. That gets Shakespearean again in my head. But he says, he, he's put you here on purpose. So you live across the street from your neighbor on purpose. You live down the hall from your uh, suite mate or your roommate on purpose. You live, uh, you're working with the people you're working with on purpose. Literally, you're born to be your age in 2021 in the middle of a global pandemic on purpose. Like God put you here for this. Like, we're invited in. And so we can't hear, go therefore. We, we need to hear, go, go, step out, step out. You got it. And so I want to invite you to allow that to settle into your heart. Because here's the thing. I think there's a lot of us who we, we want to see the big things. We want to see God do like amazing stuff. We want to see like signs and wonders and miracles. We want to see like the powerful move of the Spirit. But you know what Matthew chapter 28 says? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. I can do all that stuff. So go and make disciples. I, I'm out at the redemptive edge. You want to see me do some powerful stuff? Come on out to the redemptive edge with me. I'm not saying God's not going to do that work in the church. He does at times do that work in the church. But could it be we see less of that than we'd like because we're not actually interacting where God's called us? Like when you get into a conversation with somebody and you know if I don't get a word from God right now, I have nothing to say. All of a sudden, you're going to hear a lot differently than you did before. When you're talking to someone who is trapped in addiction and you know you don't have anything to offer, all of a sudden that prayer for healing is a totally different thing. Like when you're talking to somebody who doesn't believe a word of anything that you're saying and you know if God just gives you a truth about them that they would start to listen to you in a new way, prophecy starts to take a whole different form. Could it be that we miss the signs and wonders because we're not outdoing the things that God's called us to do? And so I want to invite you out into that. And when I say invite you, Jesus has already invited you. That's the heart of the, the call of God. He's already on mission. He's already doing it. And he says, come join me. And so as we wrap up, I'm going to invite the band to come and I'm going to pray for you here in just a second. And then um, I I want to give you an opportunity. There's a, a few of us here that would just love to be able to pray with you, pray over you. And so if you're here and you're a prayer person, you're just ready to jump into that. So you're a pastor, an elder, an intercessor, just somebody who says, yeah, I, I'm ready. I just feel like God's calling me to pray for somebody. I'm going to invite you to move to the outside here in just a second. You can go ahead and start to do that actually. And you can just kind of move there. There'll be a couple of us out there. Um, and, and if if you want to be prayed for, I'm just going to invite you to move out there. And you may be prayed for because you may be saying, like, I am not there right now. Like, I'm really comfortable, and I know I'm supposed to be moving outside, but I'm just not there. We'd love to pray for that. Or you might be saying, man, I am moving out there, and it's scary, and it's hard, and I, I need help. We'd love to pray for that. Or, or it may be that you're saying, like, 
man, I don't have a heart for this at all. Like, I don't feel any of that stuff. We'd love to be able to pray that into you as well. And so if you, if you feel like you just want to respond, we would love to be able to pray for you. Just go find one of these people on the outside, and we would love to just be able to pray. Listen to the Lord, listen to the Spirit, and pray His words over you. And then we're going to go do it. We're going to follow His command to go. Let me pray for you. Jesus, thank you for the love that you have for us, that you would invite us into your mission, your plan, your work in the world. Thank you that you loved us so that we would be able to love the world. So God, help us to do it. Give us a heart for the people that you have a deep heart for. And help us in grace to step forward, to go, step out, and trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let me ask you to stand up.